right, I will be reading from Joshua 14, beginning at verse 6. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years. Even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now, for war both to go out and to come in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain." Whereof the Lord spake in that day, for thou heardest in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him, and gave unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Hebron for an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite, unto this day, because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron before was Kirjath Arba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. And you may be seated. I want, I want to take the opportunity on behalf of my family, um, my siblings and my mom, and to just say thank you to you as a church for your generosity these last weeks as my father passed away. I just uh, am humbled to um, be at that side of things and um, you have given so well and generously, and I just uh, want to thank you for that. Those of you who took care of the logistics, the sound, the food, um, yeah, just the various roles that you played, um, so thankful for your effort and what you contributed. I've chosen today to speak on the subject of Caleb, the man of faith, just to do a little uh, character study on this great man in the Old Testament. He certainly was a hero of the Old Testament, a well-known hero who worked alongside Joshua and Moses pretty much the entire time that the children of Israel were journeying from Egypt to Canaan, the Promised Land. Caleb does not have nearly as many verses as does Joshua, for example, or Moses. 
but he was indeed a dedicated servant of God, a man who served his people and uh, his time very well. Who is Caleb? Looking at the various scriptures where he is mentioned, we are told that he was from the tribe of Judah. He was the son of Jephunneh, a Kenizzite. Now, I don't know for sure what all that word Kenizzite implies. It could mean several different things. But it could mean that he was a descendant of Esau or came from one of the tribes, the nomadic tribes from around the country of Edom or the country of Esau. Esau himself had a descendant who's a man named Kenaz. Many Bible scholars feel that Jephunneh was a descendant of Esau who perhaps married somebody from the tribe of Judah or in some other way became um, integrated into the tribe of Judah. Caleb the Kenizzite, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite. He is first mentioned in Numbers when the spies are sent out. And you'll remember the story there how Moses um, brought about a coalition of men, kind of chieftains, who were known to be, who had a reputation, I believe, for being great warriors. They were leaders, and he selected one from each tribe. And of course, Caleb was the chosen one from the tribe of Judah. Their job was to spy out the land of Canaan, and The spies were delighted to discover fertile fields and fruit to match. The problem was the enemies, the unconquered territories, the tribes and the nomadic peoples that wandered around in the land of Canaan. And my guess is Purely my imagination and my guess is that these 12 men did not necessarily always travel together in a group of 12. My thought is that that would probably be much too conspicuous. I think they probably broke out into smaller groups, smaller numbers, and um, got a layout of the land of Canaan. This was a six-week-long trip, 40 days, the Bible tells us, of hiking, of probably sleeping out in the wilderness, of analyzing the details and then getting the layout of the land of Canaan, the promised land. And these 12 tribes, again, my imagination probably regularly consolidated or they came together to exchange details and to strategize and to work on their schedules for the next days and so on. And my guess, my guess is that the 10 to 2 division that existed among the spies was probably quite obvious. My guess is it became obvious probably early on in this six-week trip. And the Bible indicates that it was something that was very painful to Joshua and Caleb. 
12 spies. 10 were bad, 2 were good. The 10 men won the argument. They won the presentation to the people. And as a result of that, the people murmured against Moses and threatened to kill Joshua and Caleb. And in that time of great personal defeat, yeah, it had to be a time of great personal defeat for Joshua and Caleb. The Bible is as clear as could be that they believed that it was God's will for them to move forward in spite of the enemies, in spite of the difficulties that they knew were ahead of them. Numbers 24 1424 indicates that there was a different spirit in these two men as compared to the other spies. There was a different spirit. God had spared them while they were hiking, while they were on their trip. While they lived uh, in Egypt, God had spared them. God had given them what they needed on their journey from Egypt to this point, Kadesh Barnea. He had showed himself strong on their behalf by unleashing plague after plague on the children, on the, the Egyptians, and had spared them, the children of Israel. <clears throat> well, as a result of the unbelief of the children of Israel, and especially the ten spies, God put a plague into the group, and thousands and thousands of people died that very night, including the ten spies. <clears throat> According to the text, as closely as I can tell, especially the text in Joshua, Moses promised Caleb that he would be given the opportunity to inherit the very land that he explored, the country that he walked on while he was on this six-week trip. The country that he explored would be his. And he apparently checked out the region around Hebron. Deuteronomy 136 talks about this, uh, alludes to this fact. Hebron was an important historical place for the children of Israel. It was the area where Abram lived when he returned from his first trip to Egypt in Genesis chapter 13. And it was in Hebron that Abram built an altar to the Lord. It was in Hebron where the covenants were given to Moses, I'm sorry, to Abram. It was in Hebron where close to Hebron where the incident took place with um, Abraham offering Isaac. It was in that general region. And as far as I can tell, this was the area where Isaac spent nearly all of his life. It was also the place where Jacob and his sons frequently took their sheep and their flocks to graze. Frequently, this was their spot to, to graze and to care for their sheep. And it was the plot of land that Abraham 
bought from the children of Heth for a burial, a cemetery for himself and his people. Abraham and Sarah were buried there. Isaac and Rebekah were buried there. Jacob and Leah were buried there. Hebron means fellowship. It was a place of fellowship for Abraham. It was a place of fellowship for the children of Israel for many years. And for Caleb, it represented all of that. And it represented what he had to look forward to when the time came for him to overcome, when the time came for him to claim territory in the promised land, the land of Canaan. It represented everything that he aspired and believed. Now, topographically speaking, at least in the time of Abraham and Isaac, the region had lots of water. It was a place that was heavily wooded and which provided shady areas for cattle as well as um, nice areas of grazing for, for the flocks. I'm told that Hebron is different today for various reasons. And it is the area that Numbers records, the book of Numbers records that the large grapes, the clusters of grapes that took two men to carry were harvested from this particular region. <clears throat> but there was a particular problem with the city, the region of Hebron, and that is that there were Anakims, giants, that were present there, the sons of Anak. And the Anakims were huge people. They were especially known to be fierce fighters. They had a reputation for being nearly impossible to withstand. The Bible also calls them Emims in various spots. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, they're called Horms. Now, there is a variety of opinions about these people. Some Bible scholars feel that prior to, um, well, in that time, there were actually satanic people who were empowered uh, in ways perhaps that um, are above and beyond normal human powers and capacities. And I have to stand here and admire Caleb and that while he saw the beauty of that region, he saw the possibilities, he saw the potential of the land of Hebron. He obviously was not overlooking the Anakims. You can, well, that just tells me a lot about this man's faith. He was not merely looking at the good things. He was evaluating the negative things as well. He saw the Anakims. It's only he saw them through the eyes of God. He saw, he believed that God was a God of provision. He believed that since God had promised them the promised land, that he, with the help of God, would be able to overcome these fearsome fighters and any other opposition that they might face. <clears throat> the ten faithless spies were also lavish in their praise of the promised land, the land of Canaan. But their perception was clouded by giants and fortified cities and walled cities, that kind of thing. 
They didn't have the eyes of faith that Joshua and Caleb did. I'd like to turn now and look at Joshua 14, which was the text that was read here prior to the sermon. And I'd like to especially dip into this passage. I think it's one of the best passages um, about Caleb. And we can see some of the most um, exciting and the most, the highest character traits uh, of anywhere in the Bible in relation to Caleb are found here in this passage. In verses 6 to 10, you can see the confident optimism that Caleb, that exudes from him. He was a leader for good reason. He was a man that believed God. He believed God's promises. Aside from that, he had a huge optimism, a confidence. Not only confident in himself, although he does some of that, you can sort of see some of his aspirations um, demonstrating themselves in a, in a confidence. But much more than that, he had an, a confidence in God. And as he, he and Joshua um, reminisce here, Caleb reminds Joshua of God's promises. He reminds them of things that had transpired 40 years prior. That's a that's a little while, a little ways, but they were just as fresh and clear in his memory as if they would have happened last week. It tells me something about how he had been surviving, actually thriving in these last 40 years. He was able to hold on to the promises of God, and they became so real in his mind. He believed them, he lived them. <clears throat> In verse 7, he tells Joshua, I bought him, that's Moses, word as it was in my heart. He's saying that in, in Hebrew, I think, translated literally, that means, that's to say, the picture there is that his heart was overflowing with confidence. And Moses, in verse 8, made the declaration or the prophecy that the area of land that Caleb explored would be the very area that would be given to him, that would be his and his family's land when they got to the promised land. <clears throat> Again, the rest of the spies and the people did not share that confidence. Numbers 14 tells us that they tried to kill, they tried to stone Joshua and Caleb. <clears throat> I can, I can imagine the feelings of personal defeat that were felt by Joshua and Caleb at that time. To have believed God, to have claimed the promises of God, and have to be made out as a person, a criminal, a person who was worthy of death for that. In addition to that, God assigned 40 years of wandering in the wilderness as a punishment for the 10 spies and for the children of Israel in general. Personal defeat. Most of us, in some form or another, have had times or moments of personal defeat. 
And you can probably imagine with Caleb the trauma, the feeling of uncertainty, the feelings of helplessness, the moments that can be defined by, um, yeah, just defeat. In Caleb's case, he felt that for many years. And you can see here in Joshua 14 how fresh and raw it still was. But at the same time, I can see here in Joshua 14 how Caleb was not defined by that personal defeat. And that says a lot about him. And it's encouraging. It gives me hope and courage to follow that same pattern. To not let personal defeat define me. To, let, to not have your personal defeat define you and the trajectory of your life. You don't have to be defeated by defeat, you see. Although you cannot change what happened, although you cannot change the outcome, you can change how you relate to that problem and how you move forward in the face of that personal defeat, how you embrace it as an inevitable part of your life. And I think it is in those times that we, that I, can benefit from those times of personal defeat. I can see that in Caleb's life, where he moved beyond, he was not defeated by that defeat 40 years prior. He had grown from that experience. That experience had become a rock in his life, a post that developed confidence and faith in God himself. And I think most times the greatest test of our surrender, the greatest test of our faith is in those exact moments of personal defeat, how we respond in times of personal defeat. This had to be a terrible time for both Joshua and Caleb. Look at verse 10 and 11. Caleb tells Joshua that he had not only survived, but he thrived. In fact, he says that at 80 years old, he was even stronger than he was prior, 40 years prior. I would guess to think that he was maybe stronger in mind. I don't know for sure if he was stronger in body. But that was his attitude. His view was that he had not only survived, but he had thrived. He had become stronger as a result of it. And I think it's true that while Caleb was physically in the wilderness, wandering around, his mind and heart were in the promised land. And I think it's a lesson for me and all of us. In his mind, he was already fellowshipping with God at Hebron. He was already in the hill country. He was already picturing the mountain that would be his. Perhaps he was strategizing and forming developments in his own mind of how this country and this area could be conquered with God's help. What had built Caleb's faith? Why was Caleb so confident? How could he be so faithful in spite of all the faithless people around him? Well, I think that Caleb was especially alert to the experiences of the past. And I think it's true for us. When we look at God's care for us in the past... It will do for us what it did for Caleb. In Egypt, for example, 
there were the plagues, and God had brought them through it. There was the Red Sea, and they, the, the trap that they had found themselves in with mountains on either side, the Red Sea in front of them, and the Egyptian army behind them. And God had provided a way for them through the Red Sea. When they got to the other side of the Red Sea, there was a need for food and, and water, and God had miraculously provided that for them. Aside from that, there was, there was miracle clothing. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, it talks about that all during their time of wandering in the wilderness, from the time they left Egypt until the time they got to the promised land, their clothes didn't become old. Miracle clothing. Just for our own good, let's talk about how God provided for them. And let's, I just took a little bit of a, uh, did some calculations, just some basic calculations with the help of a little uh, writing that I came across on what it had taken, the amount of food, some of the numbers that were necessary to provide for a group of people the size of the children of Israel for 40 years. And I broke it down into a little bit more manageable terms and broke it down to a single day. For 40 years, God had provided their needs. He had walked ahead of them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He had led them through the scorpions and the snakes and the heat of the desert. Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12 tells us that there were 600,000 men plus women and children plus a large group of non-Hebrew people that followed them. At the minimum, this group of traveling travelers was probably at least three million. I would guess three to six million in size. What would it take to provide for three million people for a single day? Well, just to avoid starvation, I'm guessing that it would take at least 1,500 tons of food to provide for three to six million people in, for a single day. And if it would be similar to our standards here in the United States, I think it could take up to 4,000 tons in a single day. Today's cost would probably be well over five million, perhaps up to 10 to 15 million dollars worth of food in a, in a day. And God did this for 40 years. But God did it miraculously. He rained down manna from the sky. And he, the, the Bible tells us that a wind blew and brought quails from the east. So they had manna and quail. He did that not just for one day, but for 40 years God provided for them every single day. And then, of course, there was the need for water. Water. At the bare minimum, I would say that it would probably take at least 11 million gallons to provide for 3 to 6 million people in a day. Remember, they were in the, uh, the, the desert. There was, it was dry. It was probably warm. An average human being can easily drink a gallon a day if you're walking or working and uh, based, dependent on the temperatures. You can easily consume drink a gallon a day and thinking about washing needs and needs of hygiene at the minimum 
it would have taken three to, three to six gallons a day. Most of us here in America probably used triple that in a day's time. And if you've ever been to the desert, you've probably noticed all the large bodies of water and the rivers and, and yeah. There were no watering holes in the desert. And so God provided water out of a rock. God did it. And Caleb realized that. Imagine setting up camp if you were hiking with a group of three to six million people. In Deuteronomy 8 verse 4, Deuteronomy 29 verse 5, he reminds the children of Israel that they had been in the wilderness for 40 years and not only did their clothes hang together, so did their shoes. Their shoes never got old. Miraculous clothing. They didn't have any bread, so God rained it down from heaven. They didn't have any water, so God provided it out of a rock. They didn't have a guide, and so God guided them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Their clothing wasn't good enough, and so God miraculously made it last for 40 years. And I have to believe that as they stood, as this group of people stood at the threshold of the promised land, the experiences of the past must have been on their minds. And it gave them hope for the future. It did for Caleb, according to Joshua 14. The certain experiences of the past before them was an unknown, untrodden land for which they would need help in conquering. But behind them was the experience of having walked under the direction of the Lord for 40 years. Ahead of them was a need for clothing and food and water. But behind them was the, the rock water and the manna and the miracle clothing that God had provided for them. And it seems as if Caleb is saying, look, I don't know what the future holds for me. But there's one thing that you can't take away from me and that's the certainty of the past. He is hanging on to God's promises in the past. And for me, for myself, for our church, it's one of the things that you can't take away from us. We can't have it removed. God has taken care of us in the past, and he will in the future. We can be confused about what God has for us in the future, but we can look back at our past and we can see God doing God things for us. And I've come to believe with all my heart that if a person wants to know God, God will show himself to that person. We talked about it in Sunday school today with Cornelius, who had this passionate, strong desire to know God, and God provided for him. And I think for me and for us, Perhaps the biggest problem is that we don't really want to know God. And that becomes, that's the bigger problem. God's desire 
to show himself and reveal himself to us is often much stronger than my desire to learn to know him. We as Christians, I think, have the option of doing or being like Caleb. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we can claim every spiritual promise. In 1 Peter, there is the verse about the living hope that can be had for the future. These promises, these hopes, these, this confidence that Scripture gives us helps us not only to survive but to thrive. Even if things get confusing, even if things are discouraging, even if we feel helpless, God can do this for us. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that we're not given the spirit of fear or timidity. We are not to be timid. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 talks about the promises of God being yea and amen, and that means that they are very sure. God's promises are trustworthy, and we can go right on. Here in our passage in Joshua chapter 14, we see that Caleb did take the land. Caleb did it. He conquered the land. The country of Hebron became his and his family for many generations. I love his declaration where he says, Give me this mountain. It was the mountain that he had in front of him all these years, all these four decades of wandering in the wilderness. He was up to the challenge. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, Now thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. 1 John 5, 4. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. John 16, 33. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Romans 8, 37. We are conquerors together. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Romans 8, 37. John 10, 10. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. What God did for Caleb, he is doing, he can do, he will do for me and you. There's one more passage that I want to look at and turn to, and that is in Joshua chapter 15. You can flip your Bibles to the next page, or in my, in my uh, Bible, it's uh, on the same, or just across the, 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 the page, where we see another picture of Caleb, and we see Caleb's faith and confidence not only carrying him personally, but Caleb's confidence exuded and gave people around him confidence. And I think that's the lesson that we see, and especially the lesson that I want to leave with you, that you living a life of faith, that you living a life of confidence, whatever age and stage of life that you find yourself in, for you to live your life in obedience and confidence in the promise of God is a contagious thing. It's like the flu. It spreads to people that we get in contact with. And your life is not in vain. Your belief and your confidence in the promise of God spread to the people around you. You don't have to necessarily say a word. You don't necessarily have to be a person who is upfront. You don't necessarily have to be a person who has some position or some title of some sort. You can affect the people around you by living a life of faith and confidence in God's promises. 
In Joshua chapter 15, we see his nephew, Caleb's nephew, Othniel. And the courage that he had is clearly evident, is evidently a reflection of his interaction with Caleb. Caleb's daughter, Aksa, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, also was a person of courage. She had the courage to go for the best. Well, I asked the question, how was Caleb able to so consistently live his life? How was he able to live out his faith so consistently over all those periods, over that long period of time, for 80 years, perhaps 85 years? Caleb's testimony, whenever he comes up in the scripture, is consistent. For example, six times in Scripture, and nearly every time Caleb's name is mentioned, in that context, it tells us that he wholly followed the Lord. He wholly followed the Lord. Numbers 14, verse 24, But my servant Caleb, because he had an other spirit with him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land. Numbers 32, 12. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. Deuteronomy 1, 36. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon, and to his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Joshua chapter 14, verse 8. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me, Caleb speaking, made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. Joshua chapter 14, verse 9. Moses sware to me on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. Joshua chapter 14, 14, Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. I close this sermon today by leaving a few lessons that I see in the life of Caleb that are especially outstanding to me as I think of it. I have two things. First of all, God sees the whole picture. It is so easy for people and for me to regress to the point where we think that things revolve around us. Daniel talked about that this morning in our devotions. We think we are the picture We tend to stoop to feelings that we're feeling and we define all of life based on maybe one or two events in our lives. We think we're the picture and we forget that we're only part of the picture, perhaps a very small part of the bigger picture. God sees the whole picture. I would guess that for most of us in looking back at our lives, I'm hoping all of us can see how God has led us. Even during the times where we were perhaps not aware of his leading, 
In hindsight, we can see God was orchestrating. He was superintending the events. And how often it is that we look at our lives and we wonder what God is up to. We can't see clearly. We can't see around the bend. And sometimes the biggest miracle that happens is not the miracle that happens to us, but it's the miracle that happens in us. And I think that was true for Caleb. The truly amazing thing about God is that he uses our decisions and our actions to fulfill his plan and his purpose. God uses us. He providentially works in our lives. He superintends and brings things into our lives not to make us comfortable. God did not bring things into Caleb's life to make him comfortable. Caleb was not a man of faith because of his level of comfort. He was not a faithful person because he never took any risks. In fact, the opposite is true. Caleb was confident because he was willing to take risks. And he was willing to use the discomfort in his life. The uncomfortable circumstances in his life turned him into a stately man. Becomes a story of his complete willingness to allow God to take him places that from a human perspective were almost impossible. And God doesn't make any mistakes. And I can tell you, folks, we can trust him. God is a God that can be trusted. He sees the whole picture. Secondly, I see in Caleb a willingness to wait on God. And I tell you, waiting in 2020 and waiting for any human being is probably one of the most difficult things that we can talk about in our lives especially as it relates to things in our life that we believe to be God's will. Believe to be God's plan and purpose for our lives collectively or individually or collaboratively. Waiting on God, I think, is the key to a consistent life. If all of us would make a chart of our lives, I'm guessing that most of us would be at least kind of unhappy with what we'd see. It's easy for us to get high, to become excited, to have the high points of our lives, followed by times of, of low experiences, perhaps very low experiences. And the one thing that we all want to have is a consistent walk before God. And I can see that in Caleb's life. A consistent walk before his friends, Joshua and Moses and others. A consistent walk before the people of Israel, his neighbors. And the thing that was not present, or seemingly not present in Caleb's life, was this issue of impatience with God's timing. Waiting on God is also the key to a controlled life. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. One of the fruit of the Spirit, one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit working in our lives is the degree of patience to which we're able, to, the, the level to which we're able to wait. 
on God. One of the fruit of the Spirit is that of having a long temper, long-suffering. That kind of person, the picture of having a long temper is that of a person who is under control. Of course, under the control of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, waiting on God, I believe, is an ultimate act of worship. It is willing to endure the loss of all things with patience, realizing that it was God who gave that thing that we held so dear in the first place. It was God who gave it. It is allowing God to fulfill his plan in our lives, even though it's seemingly taking forever, a long amount of years. And we do it with joy because of our unwavering faith in God. It is enduring physical pain and affliction because you believe that one day you will be redeemed. Your physical body will be redeemed. And your existence here on earth is is temporary and small compared to the large body where you will be in the presence of the Lord with no more sickness. Waiting on God is the ultimate act of worship. It is standing at the graveside of a loved one and believing that there's going to be a resurrection because the Bible says it. Believing that there's going to be a heaven Believing that we will one day be in the presence of God ourselves if we're faithful. By waiting on God, I think I enter into the holiest of holies. And it is an ultimate and a high act of worship to submit myself to his timing and his purpose. The very presence of God who bought me, who owns me, who purchased me with his own blood, the Bible tells us. God wants us to believe that he is looking out for our good. Hebrews 11.6 says that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And my prayer is for all of us that we would seek him. And like I said earlier, I think it is many times it is a stronger desire of God to reveal himself to us than it is for us to find God. And perhaps I'm saying that for myself. It costs to be faithful. It costs Abraham the yielding up of his only son. It cost Esther the risk of her life. It cost Daniel being cast into the den of lions. It cost Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being put into a fiery furnace. It cost Stephen death by stoning. It cost Peter a martyr's death. It cost Paul his life. And it cost Caleb 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. My question as I close is this. Does it cost you anything to be faithful? Perhaps the greatest test of whether or not we are faithful is the answer to this question. Is it costing you anything to be faithful to your Lord and King? If you're able, I invite you to kneel for prayer. (laughs) 
Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We are grateful and thankful for your provision for us, for your working in our lives. We pray that you would help us to yield ourselves only and totally and fully to you. Show us how we can do that in a better and a more consistent way. We thank you for the illustration of Caleb and his life and how he yielded himself and followed you fully and wholly. May you receive our activities today, our lives as an illustration of your promise. We pray this all through Christ. Amen.